pull up my intro. Okay. <clears throat> Michael Kane. Michael Kane. <laughs> Are you going to do the accent? Michael Kane. I'm warming up the pipes. <clears throat> He's a ruby, the size of a tangerine. <clears throat> the bandit was showing them away. All right. Here we Wait, go. Are we recording? Yeah. You pressed? Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah, you got all that. Yep. Every great podcast consists of three pods or acts. The first pod is called the funny bit. The podcasters do an impression of a celebrity and attempts to get cheap laughs out of the viewer. The second act is called the pledge to talk a lot. The podcasters take an ordinary subject like movie adaptations of books and talk ad nauseum about the subject as if the listener actually cares about what they're saying. But here's the trick. You don't care. Because of course, you're only listening. Because you are a friend or family member of the hosts. Sort of out of obligation. That's why every podcast has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. Welcome to Film is Lit. That was a long intro. That was probably our longest intro. Probably too long. <laughs> but I'm not going to edit it out. Uh, yeah, this That was is, one take, too. Yeah, one take wonder right here. Um, I, you are very lucky. I have a lot of training and laughing silently on the inside because uh, I, I was somehow able to keep it together. But I was laughing on the inside. Oh, I'm flattered. But don't patronize me. Um, yeah, welcome to Film is Lit. The podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, self-appointed. And I'm Laura. She, her, the literature expert. Yes. Yeah. He, him for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, we got another guest episode today. I can't wait to talk about this film and story. But obviously, I've mentioned this in the past. I'm a huge Nolan fanboy, I'll admit it. And today we are covering The Prestige, written by Christopher Priest, adapted by Christopher Nolan in 2006. And our guest today is a friend who I met through a mutual friend, uh, Eric Wardner. Shout out to Eric Wardner. We grew up together. Uh, I met him at our 2020 Oscar party. Remember when parties were a thing? (laughs) Um, And... (laughs) Yeah, he was a fellow movie and TV lover, a cinephile and a TV file, if you will. And I and he had a podcast of his own and he kind of inspired us to start this podcast because I was a guest on his podcast. The name of his podcast is Required Viewing. Highly recommend that and we'll talk about that. But today on the pod we have Zach Burgraff. Zach, say hello. Hi, Danny. It's great to be here to talk about my favorite film of all time, The Prestige. Uh, I think it is still my favorite film. I've just been saying that since I watched it the first time, uh, and I've stuck with it for over 15 years now. So wow. I think it, yeah, it is about 15 years. Yeah, because it came out in 2006. So yeah, about 15 years uh, since. Um, and yeah, still still have not found a movie that I uh, have watched 14 times like I've watched this one. I did not know it was your favorite movie. That's interesting. When you had recommended that we cover this, I, like a lot of people, had no idea that it was a book. I, I don't know what happened with Christopher Priest or his uh, this book. It was popular when it came out, but for some reason, people just don't know about it now. I think because Christopher Nolan is just 
so famous, probably the most famous directors mm -hmm. working today, that his movie has eclipsed the book. But yeah, I'm like, oh, any any excuse to talk about the prestige, which is not my personal favorite Nolan movie. I I, I think I'm an, an Inception guy, but Prestige is probably number two or number three. So I I can't wait to talk about this film and book. Let's get into it. You had kind of mentioned that you have loved this movie ever since you saw it in 06. Uh, do you want to kind of go a bit, a little bit more into your, your backstory with this narrative? Yeah. I mean, I don't, so I, one thing to know is I didn't actually see this in theaters. I don't know how long after um, its release it was that I saw it. Um, but I remember the first time I watched it was, um, you know, just in my living room. I think, I think my dad was watching it with me as well. And upon the first viewing, um, it is for anyone who's seen it um, and specifically for anyone who's seen it two or three times. Uh, it is a completely different movie. The, the second time you watch it for sure. So when I saw the prestige part one um, watching it the first time, there were a couple things I remember about that experience. Um, and that was a long time ago now. So only a few, but then uh, upon the, the next few viewings, the thing I remember most about it was really noticing something different every time I watched it through you know, the second, third, fourth, I think, I think it was probably the fifth or sixth time that I watched it that I finally was like, okay, I, I think I've uncovered everything in it. And then I did spend quite, I think I've, it's been, this is the longest bit I've been since I've seen it on a repeat viewing. I don't know when the last time I watched it was, but um, I watched it this morning for the first time in quite a few years uh, and kind of started noticing new things again, which may, maybe I noticed before, but I may have forgotten about them. So it's like, reliving the discovery a whole uh, uh a whole nother time absolutely yeah War. uh when did you read the book first or when did you find out it was a book yeah i did uh probably in the immediate like google searching i did after watching the the movie nice. um we did have google back then um <laughs> and i don't remember when i decided to read it um it must have been when i was still in high school that i read it um so i did i have read the book um i reviewed it I don't have the copy anymore. I have no idea where that ended up, but uh, I did some reviewing of it to try and remember what the main differences were. Um, and I do, I do remember the main thing I took away from the book that I thought was interesting and kind of allowed me to <laughs> reinterpret parts of the movie. We'll talk about that later, but yeah, it was a, it was a very different experience watching the film, reading the book and watching the film a second or third time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. Lore, your background. Yeah, well, I had neither seen the movie nor read the book before Zach suggested it. So I was super, super excited to dive into this. I didn't even know who starred in the movie. Like I had mm. no clue because I've only been sort of a recent cinephile, I guess, since I met Danny. I've turned her. He's Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to the point, honestly, where sometimes I don't enjoy movies because I'm looking for background. Yes. You know, I've, I've ruined like, movies for you. Uh, well, yeah, and specifically <laughs> movies that were shot in Los Angeles because I grew up here. I'm steeped in Hollywood legend and all this stuff. And so, like, unfortunately, Danny's turned me a little too far. <laughs> situations yeah. <laughs> but anyway regardless I had so much fun with this book and movie I read the book first and even up until the credits started rolling Danny was like okay quick guess who stars in the movie and I said okay let's see who was super popular in 2006 I said Ewan McGregor and Hugh Jackman 
And he was like, all right, well, you got one of you two. Got, you got one of them. And I'm, that was, and you and McGregor, I mean, yeah, that was right around the Star Wars time. I yeah. mean, yeah, you were. I was actually, I thought that I hit the nail on the head with him first. I right. was like, oh, for sure he's going to be in this. Um, but I think he could have done a good job with the yeah. role. But I really love Christian Bale. So you didn't, get, you didn't guess David Bowie? No, I no. did not see that coming. <laughs> and that was so fun, too. It was like so random. I was like, what? Did Danny tell you ahead of time or did you, cause he doesn't actually show up until about halfway through the film. Did you recognize him? I recognized him, but Danny told me nothing. I had, I didn't even know that Michael Caine was in this movie. Like I had no, well, yeah. it's, a, it's a Nolan movie. Of course. I know I should have known. This I was should've... back when Michael Caine actually played like a character and not a cameo in Nolan's films. I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's I think a I think character. this is the film. I I believe this is the film where Kane probably has the most, um, uh, you know, speaking or screen time um, in in all of his films. Yeah, and he does play a really vital role because he's sort of the anti-obsession magician. Like I kind of feel too like he's pulling the strings in a lot of ways in the beginning. Like like Borden and Angie are in his show basically. Like he's planning all this stuff, um, all the illusions. Um, mm-hmm. I'll try not to use magic tricks because I know how magicians feel about <laughs> the word magic. Actually, the whole time I was reading this book, all I could think about was Job from Arrested Development saying, illusions, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I enjoyed both the book and the movie. I enjoyed how many changes the movie made. It was just a hugely fun experience for me. So thanks for suggesting this, Zach. Yeah. So, and did you read the book uh, first? Yeah, I did. I uh, I finished it like the day we watched the movie. Um, and actually, the end really creeped me out. <laughs> of the book. Of the book, yeah. And I guess the movie too, but... Right, but I, I think the the book is so interesting in the end because it almost turns into like a gothic novel. Like it yeah. completely, yeah. not only did it, was there a twist at the end, it almost reinvented itself. And I, I'm excited, like you said, to go back and read the book again, as well as watch the movie again, because I feel like it is one of those contained, like circular stories that if you understand the ending, you'll get more as you revisit it. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to read the book and watch the movie again. I think there's a lot you can mine out of this. Oh yeah. And I'll say this. So I like the movie a lot more than the book. However, the movie is a sci-fi story disguised as a period drama, whereas the book is a sci-fi story disguised as a period drama that turns into full-blown horror, mm-hmm. like gothic horror. Yeah, as a, if I recall, the ending's more um, more metaphysics than physics, which is the um, the show that plays science plays a pretty big part in the the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the one thing the book has that I kind of admire it more than the movie that it changed its genres twice, not just yeah. once. Like yeah. I think I slipped up and said show there for a moment. I'm, I'm a little yeah, used to how dare TV, you. as you can tell. <laughs> I didn't notice it. Yeah. He's still, he's coming off his podcast required viewing. Everyone listen to it. <laughs> Second plug. You're well. Uh, but yeah. So for my background, I saw it uh, when it came out on DVD and to quote a past guest, Dr. Sean Flory, uh, and this quote was coming from him talking about seeing Dune at a young age. When I saw Prestige at a young age, it's so 2006, we were 12. It's one of those movies that you see as a preteen that just blows your mind, that just becomes a complete 
obsession through and through. I could not talk about this movie for that whole month after I saw it. And beyond that, it, it certainly kickstarted my love of Christopher Nolan because I had seen Batman Begins uh, in the theater with my brother and I wasn't big into directors at that time. I was in fourth grade and I, I liked Batman Begins. It's a solid movie, but the prestige is next level and it kicks off Nolan's run, which I call the hits, which is he went, he did the prestige, then he did the dark Knight, and then he did inception. Just, I mean, that's one of, that's one of the greatest runs of, of films, in my opinion. I mean, some directors have commensurate runs, but th th that's pretty epic. So, yeah, I love the movie. I've rewatched it many years since. Didn't realize it was a book until Zach recommended it. And, uh, yeah, listened to the audiobook, which was well done. And I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. I think the movie is an improvement, but it's also very different. I like that you recommended this because it has the full spectrum of similarities and differences. You know, there's some stuff that's exactly the same. And then conversely, there's stuff that's completely different and everything in between that's slightly different or blended, switched around. So yeah, it's one of those unique adaptations where it's both like the book in every way, but also its own thing. So mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's get into some of the big differences. So, Zach, right off the top, is there anything that you wanted to address about big changes between the book and the movie? Well, uh, if I recall, this is quite, I'm quite a while ago now, but if I recall correctly, um, the big difference is the Angier side of the storyline. Um, the, if I recall, the book doesn't have the whole Tesla or any of the um, like the the science behind it, unless I'm misremembering this. But what I remember about the book was more um, how they told uh, Borden's story, Alfred Borden, Christian Bale's character in the film. Yeah, the the ending um, of the book kind of goes into a little bit more of a weird metaphysics thing with with Angier, and in the film, it's uh, it's very science focused and more focused on um as you said the book the book was a little bit more gothic horror this was more um uh like sci-fi horror-ish i guess or more of a a drama sci-fi drama telling about some of the horrors of of science i suppose the other big difference obviously is the book has this kind of unnecessary framing story um that the movie rightfully i think cuts and goes with uh, they they use the journals, um, which is also evident in the book. That's something I want to talk about in terms of similarity. But they kind of use the 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 dual journals, um, both Angier reading Borden's journal and vice versa, um, to frame the story and kind of naturally jump back and forth and do the Christopher Nolan nonlinear thing, but <laughs> in a way that uh, uh, that kind of makes sense and is framed with a vehicle to the the storytelling there in the form that they're reading each other's journals. And, and it's almost like a nested thing, like inception as well. You can see the influences of, uh, of memento as a prior film and going into inception there. I I'm very curious. Uh, you both read the book more recently, so you can fill this in. I'm curious what you thought of the, the changes there with how they, how they handle, I guess it's the twist. Like both, both of them have two characters, two main characters and each character has their twist um, that they drive. But one of them is quite different in the books. And I think uh, I think it's a bit better in the movie. But um, I think you both maybe remember the books a bit better than I do. Well, I was going to say, first off, that the framing that exists in the book, I think I agree it was a good idea to take that out. Because when I was reading it, I feel like 
the only thing, the only reason I could identify for that was because I think Christopher Priest wanted to say like, oh, the feud is finally over. Like they're finally, these families are finally able to come together and overcome their obsession. And it's, I guess there was like the male and female aspect and they were kind of flirting with each other. So it was like, they could overcome that because there was a relationship possibility there. And I just feel like the movie taking that out streamlined the themes a lot better. Um, I thought that the end of the book was really interesting. However, again, I think that Christopher Nolan, the way he rewrote it for the movie, it was smart because I didn't quite understand the motivation for Angier to continuously regenerate himself into his old prestige materials. For me, I thought that his motivation throughout the whole book was to sort of like continuously blow people away and like entertain people. And so I didn't understand, like he never felt, it never felt like his motive was like staying alive forever or like, I don't know. I just didn't understand what the motive for him to continuously regenerate was. So I, I, I thought right. it was creepy, but I didn't quite understand how it folded in with the rest of the book. Yeah, I kind of have a theory of that. So we should mention the twist we're talking about. So in the movie, the machine that Tesla makes for Angier duplicates him but keeps the original or not the original but it duplicates them and keeps both copies both people alive so angier in order to preserve his secret and to not have two of them running around kills one copy every single night that is pretty dark which i like yeah. like yeah. i thought that's what was going to happen in the book every time he copied i was like oh so he's going to have to figure out how to murder himself after every performance, I was actually surprised in the book that it wasn't as dramatic. Like that prestige material is automatically just sort of inert. It's not quite dead, but it's just like a... Yeah, it's a husk frozen yeah. in time, I believe is yeah. the description. Yeah, there was like some kind... I thought it was in the book, like there was some something like went wrong with it and it like didn't make a full copy. So there was some like weird, like one of them was like a, an incorporeal thing. Uh, more ghost-like and the other one was more physical but um, not all there mentally or, or spiritually I don't know um, which is like I get it that's that's like a way of you know creating the like the shock and the horror of like oh this is so this is like such a weird and horrible thing but you don't you don't need that as the sh as the movie explained like the idea of duplicating yourself and then uh, as he does um killing himself over and over again and not knowing, you know, when you step into the thing, uh, I think this, this is like a metaphysics and philosophy, uh, thing that I don't remember the name of, but the idea of like, is it still you, um, if you were to, you know, clone yourself, um, and, and just have the same memories in both, um, which one's real. And as he steps into the machine, every, every performance, not knowing if he's going to be the, the man in the box or the prestige that comes out the other end of the, the stage, uh, that in and of itself, I think, does a perfectly good job of the more you think about it, um, it's creepy um, in a yeah. way that the the way they did it in the book is, uh, uh, I don't know, it just it, it's not necessary. Um, they're they're adding the uh, the metaphysical element without much payoff there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Christopher Nolan being such a master at character, in addition to spectacle, Angier killing himself every night completely fits with that character they set up because, you know, if Angier clones himself once, that's all he needs to do the trick that Borden does. 
Oh, but, point. But he would rather kill himself every night than share the spotlight. I mean, you know, that's mirrored with him with the double. The reason he doesn't want to do that anymore is because he doesn't want to be the man under the stage. Now he has a machine that literally clones himself, but he knows that he can't live with another person. It has to be one, even though, you know, literally he makes two. So he would rather commit suicide than share the spotlight, mm-hmm. uh, which is like crazy character work, but it's totally fits. Uh, whereas the book, to kind of answer your question of why you didn't know why Angier was living for so long. So in the book, the machine copies your essence and transports the essence to a body somewhere else. And then the body that was left is just a husk that's frozen in time and called the prestige materials that Angier has to dispose of every night. The book sort of ends before they go back to modern times. Angier wants to because he's now like a ghost, an actual like corporeal. He doesn't, he's, he can only have mass if he concentrates and he wants to transport himself back into a prestige material in order to die. Right. Because he can't die as a ghost. But I, th- the, the book never explicitly states this, but I don't think he, he was able to. Right. So that's why he, at the end, we see the ghost of Angier because he's just like the prestige materials. He is a ghost is frozen in time forever. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But I feel like he kept using the machine. So I didn't understand, like, why he would keep using the machine if he couldn't die. That's true. I don't know. That's a, I, good, that's a good point. I, I don't have an answer for that. Because but... <laughs> I, I think that when he stored the prestige materials in the crypt, he kept using those to, like, put himself in a new body. So I, I like, because he was reusing the machine over and over. So to me, it felt like he wanted to stay alive. Well, that theory posits that he was able to go, his ghost form, go back into the bodies. So yeah, yeah, if that is the case, then we're not giving motivation as to why he wants to live forever. Right. So anyway, yeah, that, I liked the idea of the ending, but I didn't see how it fit with the character. So anyway, yeah, that was like a long... Right. Confusing but, conversation. So yeah, that blew my mind as a kid that Angier was I mean, it's so dark, even for a PG thirteen movie. Yeah. For to kill yourself every night. I couldn't comprehend that. And the other big twist was that Borden is in fact uh part of identical twins and Fallon, his assistant and you know bodyguard, bodyguard and friend, uh is the other Borden and they take turns uh being the the stage magician and and Fallon, uh, the Borden and, and Fallon. So in the book, it, it's not really a secret. It's kind of revealed early on that there are two people writing um, in this journal. And when you watch the movie a second time, there there are so many clues that mm-hmm. uh, that Borden is in fact two people with you know his wife saying like. You love me today, but not yesterday. And it doesn't, you don't mean it today. And it, there's so many little clues and we will watch it. It's one of those things where you're like, how did I not pick that up? Uh, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk, talk about that. Zach. Um, I do because this morning I took a lot of notes um, and this is something that I've picked up on before, but never to this extent. Um, and I actually, I marked um, each instance of this with a little um, symbol. So I could go through them all, but the thing that I think um, they did really well or adapted really well from the book um, 
and I think actually reading the book helped me appreciate what they, how they did this in the film was um, there's a certain language that Borden uses when he's talking about um, himself, meaning his twin. And the key word there is um, uh, he uses the word myself a lot. And when you're reading the book, um, I believe the way it's done, if I recall, was there, it's it's a journal at that point, uh, whereas the Angier part of the book is is letters, I think. Um, but the the Borden part is his journal, and they alternate pages. So um, I think even like the writing style and like the the grammar um, was like nuanced different. Um, mm-hmm. Laura, I think you're the the English um, expert here, so you you may. Um, be able to tell me if that's accurate or not. But the thing that I remember was as he's talking about conversations that he had with his twin um, in the book, he refers to it using the specific language. And so I pulled some quotes from the film that it does a very good job of each one of them is very much hidden in plain sight, where if you're watching it the first time, it makes sense and you, you interpret it one way. Um, but when you know that there's twins, you can interpret it a very different way. And the first one, actually, I, I forget if this is actually first because this was more, this was in the voiceover. So I don't know where this happens chronologically, but there's a line very early in the film where I think it's when Angier first starts reading the journal and Borden uses the line, it opens the flashback with, we were two young men at the start of our great careers, two young men who never intended to hurt anyone. And then they show the clip of um, uh, Borden and Angier working for Michael Caine and the other magician in that first act. So the two young men, they present it as referring to himself and Angier. Upon the second viewing, you know, he's talking about him and his twin uh, are the two young men. So cool. That's just like the it's the yeah. coolest thing ever. I can't get over that. Yeah. So the rest of it is more um, Borden refers to conversations that he had during the the swaps that they do, which I think are daily. Um, he says to Angier, or uh, the guy representing Angier in the prison, um, he says, I won't forgive myself for selling my greatest trick um, there. He's he's obviously referring to his his twin. Um, here we go. There's the, the two young men um, flashback line. You have this scene where after uh, Angier's wife dies, perhaps as a result of the wrong knot being tied in that uh, in that illusion, Angier asks him, Borden, when he sh- one of them shows up at the funeral, um, he, sa- he asks Borden, what knot did you tie? And Borden responds, I fought with myself. One half of me swears, you know, I tied this knot. The other half of me ties the other knot. And this is the other language. He occasionally uses the term half um so the words half and myself are used quite a bit there mm. um another example when Angier later sees uh one of the bordens with his baby and wife on the street on this is Angier referring to borden it says he says i saw happiness happiness that should have been mine uh the family life he craves one minute he rails against the next this is referring to in the journal um his soul is a divided one um as Angier puts it mm. um and then you have a few more instances. Um, one at one point when in the scene where Borden has an, uh, is giving the key to his wife, well, one of the Bordens. I feel like there there should be a way of distinguishing them. Um, but so one one of them uh, is is presenting um, a key to this new house that he's presumably bought um, for for his uh, his wife. Um, what's her name? Sarah, I think. Yeah, Sarah. One of the one of the reasons I rewatched it was just to get the names right, but I, I yeah. still can't do that. Um, so he, he she says she says something implying that uh, that she had brought up 
a house the previous week. And then um, Borden says, you caught me in the wrong mood. And he says, just accept this. I'm going to have to change my mind about it, aren't I? Meaning I'm going to have to change my mind, meaning the other the other half of me. Yeah. Um, when um, Scarlett Johansson's character first defects to the, you know, Borden's act, um, she mentions like, the, you're, I'm here to bring you what your act is missing, me. And then Borden looks over at Fallon. This is maybe one of the most obvious points, but he looks over at Fallon, gestures and says, I was just saying that, wasn't I? That's what we're missing, a woman's touch. Ooh, whoa. did not catch that at all. <laughs> Yeah, whoa. And then um, in the scene where uh, Fallon, who we now know is one of the Bordens, uh, is captured and buried alive by Angier and Michael Caine. Cutter is the, the char- his character's name. But um, they bury him alive, and then he shows up kind of drunk to uh, to a very awkward dinner with his mistress and wife and twin. He says, uh, I've, I have a great new idea for a trick. I'm going to bury myself alive every night um, and then dig that up. Um, literally referring to myself as the other one of his twins. He also, in one of the journal entries, uh, I think he says um, he's he's essentially trash-talking his his fellow twin, saying, to open myself up to a, such an affair. This is when one of the twins starts getting romantically involved with Scarlett Johansson. Uh, again, that language of myself. And then shortly after, you have one of the twins, which I still I still actually can't tell which one this is. In some cases, I can tell which one it is. One of them... The one who like who uh, is in love with Sarah, the other in love with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, Olivia. Um, right? Yeah, that's her. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I'm just going to call her Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, sure, Scarlett. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, the when the daughter is saying, um, "I want to go to the zoo," and he says no, and she says, "But you promised." He says, "Oh, I promised, did I?" Obviously, a promise that the other one made. Mm-hmm. And this is where this is the point. This is all chronological. These these references. So about two thirds of the way into the film they really up the game as far as how obvious it is. And there's one scene which is so forgettable, but I actually think it like almost should have been taken out because it's like basically giving the whole thing away. Um, And this is uh, the carousel scene. It's very short. Borden is meeting with Fallon right after uh, he's talking to his daughter about going to the zoo. And this is essentially them doing the handoff. Um, And basically one Borden says to Fallon, um, Oh, this is also right after um, Sarah makes the reference where the the Borden talking to her says, I love you. And she says, you mean it today, which makes it so much harder uh, on the days that you don't. Um, and so then that Borden, presumably, that yeah, that's the one that is in love with uh, with Sarah, goes to meet Fallon to do the switch. He gives him a shopping list. He says, the little lady wants to go to the zoo. So I thought you could take her. Otherwise, it's fine. I can take her tomorrow if you can't. And then he says, Sarah, she knows she doesn't know anything specific, but do whatever you can to help me talk to her, convince her that I do love her. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after this, they obviously swap. And then one of them goes to Scarlett Johansson and she calls him Freddie, which is presumably one of them is okay with being called Freddie and the other is not. This is also very weird at the dinner scene um, because she calls him Freddie and uh, Sarah Sarah is all mad about that. So that that might be a way to distinguish the, twi- the twins because one of them clearly goes by Freddie and the other one goes by Alfred. So maybe we can refer to him as Alfred, who is uh, in love with Sarah and Freddie, who's kind of cheating on Sarah, but not really. Um, mm-hmm. But the one who's actually in love with, well, he's the one who's in love with magic more than yeah. more than the yeah. woman, but he's the one who has the affair with, with Olivia. So 
after they do the swap, Scarlett Johansson um, calls him Freddie and he says, don't call me Freddie. Uh, it's just some days it seems it seems wrong. And then she she says, I saw Fallon hanging around like I don't trust him. And he says, you trust Fallon. You trust me. Trust Fallon. Essentially saying we are the same person. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought all of this up because I feel like that language is something that I might have picked up on a second read because I started noticing grammatical changes when, cause the bulk of the book is from Borden's perspective. Like there's a little bit mm -hmm. of the framing in the beginning, but very, very little, um, like two chapters of that. And then there are, there's a collection of Angier's letters and then the bulk is Borden and then it goes back to sort of the main uh, or the beginning like modern time yeah. framing and there by the very end like I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to realize from the book that they were brothers and I think it was just some of the grammatical changes and it was also the way that he was using my and I and I was mm -hmm. like yeah oh got it in the like, in the book it's much yeah it's much more clear um and that's what made me pick up on this in the movie because the movie it's hidden a lot more um now i will say the movie essentially tells you it's a double they don't use the term twin but this is again like we, we're talking about this movie as if it has two twists but both of them the movie tells you up front what is happening like it does yeah. not lie to you and there is there's even one other scene uh, i think shortly after that one i just mentioned um which i believe there's a line which if i recall uh in an interview with nolan or or one of the nolan um twins who collaborated on this um that's also hilarious that if you didn't know christopher nolan and jonathan nolan his brother are um they're not identical twins but i believe they're fraternal twins um, oh, cool. I did. I, I did that. not. Not or know at least that. brothers. I'm, I may be making up the twin thing, but I do know that the the twin, the interest in the book and what got Nolan interested to adapt the book was the twin element because he has a brother and Jonathan Nolan is American and he's British. So it's this weird right. situation. They collaborated on this this screenplay. But anyway, there's a there's an interview with one of them or it might have even been with uh, with the actress who plays Sarah where there, there's the scene where they're fighting and she says she says the line, I know what you really are. And that line, I think, was, um, according to this interview, was not in the script. Um, it was ad-libbed. And she almost stopped the take because she realized that and realized that it gives it away. And they kept it in. Um, but they, they initially thought that, that that line was essentially giving away the whole thing. Um, but Nolan being as bold as he is with all these other clues that were laid out, left that in. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think the the way that plays, this is the scene right before she kills herself. Um, Borden responds by basically saying, she says, I can't live like this. He says, you think I bloody enjoy living like this. Um, and then you have the scene with her in the the workshop where she hangs herself. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much the end of the, the instances of, uh, of the twins kind of giving it away. But by that point, it's very much, all laid out there and then pretty shortly after is the official reveal where they basically do say um what's going on there mm -hmm. yeah that's that's the big trick or excuse me illusion of <laughs> nolan's whole filmography is that he has these open clues that mm -hmm. uh, upon rewatch seem so obvious to you or or open clues that on your first watch inform the way you're viewing the movie without you even thinking about it like subconsciously you're you're queuing that up 
Like, for instance, he sets up Angier's trick, the machine with Tesla, with with the bird trick early on, that there's actually not, it's not the same bird. You're killing one bird and revealing mm-hmm. a copy, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so brilliant. And actually, I was going to, I don't know if this sort of like veers off of what we were talking about, but I wanted to talk about the differences and stakes between the books and the movie. Something I think that Nolan did really, really well was raise the stakes from the very beginning. Because in the book, the reason the rivalry begins is because Angier is, again, very focused on the experience of the audience in that in-between of like, you know, it's not really magic, but you crave that sensation of like well what's what really is it like what am i seeing like you want to think it's magic and he wants to bring that out of the audience as as michael kane says in the film you want to be fooled right exactly and then he doesn't respect the way that borden goes about his magic which is by performing seances other other way no, Borden, right? But Borden doesn't um, respect Angier doing the seances. Oh, sure? right. There yeah. was a there was something about his, doesn't his wife die in a different yeah. way? Oh no, um, his uh, no, his wife. So Angier's wife doesn't die. She has a miscarriage because yeah. Borden. So Angier is doing seances with his wife, who is yeah, that's right, uh, yeah, who is in the early stages of pregnancy, and Borden is so. We should mention that here so nolan makes borden kind of the winner at the end the main character or i guess both bordens well, um, he makes he makes one of the bordens the winner um and it, yes. it is if you follow it closely it is actually the one who cared more about his wife um and not the one who caused all the problems because if gotcha. you yeah. if you're diligently tracking the difference between which one is alfred and which one is freddie there's actually one scene at the end after um sarah commits suicide uh there's one i missed which is they're arguing over, well, actually, no, there's, there's two. There's one where um, he goes to meet up with Scarlett Johansson and she's like, what's up with this? You haven't said anything about your wife who just killed herself. And he basically says, you want to know the truth. I never loved her. Part of me did the part of me sitting here with you and the other, the other half loves you. Like he basically spells it out um, without saying like we're twins. And then Scarlett Johansson even says, you could be in some other restaurant with some other woman like saying this right now. Um, And then there's, there's one last scene where they're together where they're trying to figure out how Angier does the trick. All they know is there's a trap door involved. um, And he's yelling, he's like yelling at Fallon saying, why can't you outthink him? But in a way, like knowing Fallon is him, he's really just mad at himself because he can't figure it out. Then they show another instance of them arguing in the same room, but it's clearly later after they have swapped. And the one who I believe is Alfred is saying, okay, we're done. Both of us leave him alone. And then immediately after that scene, they cut to Borden going to bug Angier again. And that's the instance where they Angier dies and he goes below stage and gets caught for the murder. So it's clearly, you know, Alfred is the one who is like, we're going to leave him alone now. He's, he's probably just over it after his wife has committed suicide, but Freddie is the one who wants to keep going. Freddie is the one who obviously gets caught for the murder and hung, which the that's another whole point we could talk about is the poetic justice between Freddie, who essentially caused Sarah to hang herself, is hung yeah. by the neck until dead. In the same way that Angier, whose wife died by drowning, 
poetically drowns himself or his clone at least every night. But yeah, that that whole thing, if you track it diligently, the one who comes out with the happy ending and the only person who doesn't die between the <laughs> two, three main characters is is Alfred, the one who um, who was in love with Sarah and wanted to leave Angera alone. Wow. Th- yeah. Thanks for doing that work. I didn't even think of that. That makes me appreciate the movie even more. I guess, yeah, I guess the way that I figured that out was just because the Borden, the brother that comes back for his daughter is the one that was always like very caring. I like, I, oh, and also I found out when I was doing research for the podcast that the daughter is played by Christopher Nolan's daughter, Jess. Whoa, cool. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, cute little kid. But yeah, I like, I guess to like finish my thought from earlier too, I was just thinking that like the stakes are raised because like Danny said, it is Angier and his wife who are performing the seances and Borden keeps uh, messing them up and exposing them as frauds. And so, you know, in the scuffle, Angier's wife has a miscarriage after being shoved to the ground. By Borden. By Borden. While he's trying to escape. And that's intense, but it sort of sets up kind of a low bar for where their feud begins. Whereas in the movie, like 20 minutes maybe into the film, Angier's wife is dead and it's because Borden tied a knot that she couldn't untie during or maybe. the illusion. Well, yeah. right, maybe, possibly. Yeah. But I really liked how those stakes were raised, like, right off the bat. And then that sort of introduces another really big change in the movie where Angier, you know, he, he has the machine created by Tesla, and in the end of the book, he wants to kill Borden, but he ends up not being able to go through with it because he's like, wait a second, like, he literally has like a knife to Borden's chest and is like seconds away from killing him. And he's like in cold blood. I just can't let myself go to this place. Like, this is just like way too crazy. We blew up the feud, like way beyond anything that it ever originated in. And so he stops himself. Whereas in the movie, Borden is so angry, rightfully so, to be honest, like, he basically set up his brother to go to slash him like Angier never knew that it was two brothers so he basically set up both brothers to be tried for murder and killed for murder yeah he just straight up shoots him and i think like that's i love those stakes like no i I couldn't agree more not only is the book surprisingly low stakes with just their feud starting with well that's the thing it makes you hate or at least made me hate Borden mm-hmm. because he is directly responsible for a miscarriage. I mean, that's kind of awful, but... But he did try to apologize for it. Uh, right, yes. But, like, who gives a crap if he's doing seances? Like, I get that you are that you want to preserve the integrity of magic tricks, but... Illusions. <laughs> yes, yeah. But it, it kind of seemed... It seemed really petty. Yeah. And, which they call was them the tricks. Point. They, they do call yeah. them tricks in the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, it, it seemed petty because it was. I think that was the point. Christopher yeah. Priest was going for that by the end, these men didn't even know what they were fighting about. Mm-hmm. But I think what's what much more compelling is that Borden indirectly or directly, you don't know, 
caused the death of Angier's wife, which is much more terrifying and scary and depressing. And what's even more compelling is you can never get confirmation on what happened because one of the two Borden twins tied the knot. And if that, so one twin doesn't know what knot was made because you know he wasn't there. The other twin, if he did tie the knot that killed Julia, that twin would never admit it because why would he admit something so awful? So he would never say anything. So Borden saying that he doesn't know is actually genuine. When Angier can't come to terms with that because he's like, how can one person not know what they were thinking and tied in that moment? The the trick being that it wasn't one person, it was two. So yeah, I love, love the stakes of that as we talked about earlier, loved the heightened stakes of Angier having to kill himself every performance as opposed to him, uh, a husk dying and him being transported much cooler. And then it's so satisfying when Borden comes out of the shadows and shoots Angier, who at this point has become the full blown villain who we can talk about. This has always been Lord Caldwell, right? And he is a, has always been British, but he was playing American. Called Low? Called Low, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Call, That's something that they low. took from the books as well, right? I think that was more prevalent. Yeah, in, uh, yeah in the it book. was definitely more of his backstory because he talks about how his father died young. So the property went to his brother and that's why he was able to become a magician because he had that inheritance. Yeah, yeah. which is an instance of the book that I think was wisely cut out of, of the movie. And there are long stretches of the book that mostly with Angier's story that just go on and on and on. And me personally, I'm like, let's let's cut to the chase here. It was a big reason why the movie is so much more successful than the book. It's just streamlined to be purely the feud in the 1800s, purely the twists, and then we're out. The movie's two hours, 10 minutes, feels much faster, but it's like the perfect length, you know, long enough to feel like this big momentous story, but short enough where we don't lose our attention. But yeah, Christopher Nolan is just the master of stakes and, and spectacle. His movies, more than anything, are about immersion. Like, but you're just fully in it. And it's like the ultimate goal of actors, but especially filmmakers, to make you forget that you're watching a film, that you're watching performances. It feels like you're watching a real thing. Even more impressive that it's a sci-fi story, but it still feels completely grounded most notably because it puts in a real historical figure in Nikolai Tesla, the rock star of the 1800s, played in the movie. I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. We're, what, an hour into recording? Played by David Bowie, the legend. May he rest in peace. But man, what a performance. Let's talk about this guy. I really liked this. I was already, at the time... Um very into the the whole tesla versus edison thing um mm. that was i i actually feel like this movie has made that a little more well known but based on some historically accurate stuff i don't i don't think uh what was showed of tesla in this film is 100 historically accurate but yeah the the rivalry there is great it also obviously is meant to mirror the rivalry between borden and angier mm. um and uh, there's another one um that we, you know, in addition to David Bowie, the minor, well, actually, I think he might even have more screen time, but his assistant um, was played by Andy Serkis, um, yeah. also known as Gollum. Um, so that's that's one that you might not recognize, both because he's not 
uh, in his typical mocap suit um, or doing the typical my precious voice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- this is just even the side characters in this uh, this movie are some pretty big stars um, from some large movies. Shout out to his New York accent. That was really, really good. (laughs) I noticed that it was Andy Serkis when he came on screen and I was like, whoa, that's such a random choice. That's such a random casting choice. And then when he opened his mouth and had a New York accent, I was like, damn, he's good at everything. He's he's great. He's a master. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's known for being the mocap guy, but you can find him in other projects and he's a compelling actor too. I mean, shout out to Andy Serkis. But David Bowie even does the perfect Tesla accent which is that it's the Americanized Serbianish? Yeah, right, exactly. Baltic. Where it, it, it's it, where the accent comes out uh, on certain words, but for the most part, he's been fully Americanized by living there for so long. And for uh, you know, research he Tesla, the man, he researched uh, how to talk in the American accent and uh, adapted that pretty quickly, being the genius that he was. But yeah, Christopher Nolan. Something I might, he always throws these crazy casting picks in his movies. Stunt casting is the term, but like in Insomnia, the villain in that was Robin Williams. I mean, especially at the time, you know, in the heyday of Robin Williams's career, for him to play a villain was completely unexpected. And then in like Batman Begins, he has Rutger Hauer in a role there, you know, from Blade Runner. We talked about him. And in this movie is David Bowie and the circus. And Interstellar, he has Matt Damon pop up for an extended cameo. Christopher Nolan loves to do this. And to his credit, it always works in my in for his films. In other films, stunt casting can go, it can be a distraction. But in this case, David Bowie being the larger than life character perfectly mirrors the larger than life person who was Nikolai Tesla. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think it's a casting choice made off of the legendary status rather than anything. I mean, he, David Bowie has a little bit of like the heart shaped face as Nikola Tesla, but it's not like, he's not like a dead ringer. Like there are, I watched this really fun Canadian show called Murdoch. Zach, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I haven't, no. It's, it's been on the air for like 15 years. And one of their sort of characteristic things is that the show takes place at the turn of the century in Canada, just at the same time period as this. And so the main detective, Detective Murdoch, consistently runs into American and Canadian and English and Scottish rock stars. Like Nikola Tesla is actually on the show multiple times. And there are actors who perfect that character just to play characters like this in movies and television shows. And I just think it's kind of cool. And I think he did a really smart thing by using someone who had this larger-than-life legend, just as Nikola Tesla did. And I really like the way that Christopher Priest used Nikola Tesla to, like Zach, you were saying, sort of mirror this obsession-based rivalry between the two inventors, um, Edison and Tesla, as well as Angier and Borden. Like, I think that in our modern times stuff like that kind of happens between like pepsi and coke and like massive industries and like nowadays we have like tesla and other smart cars smart cars yeah, yeah. like i guess it, it sort of happens between companies but we don't always see individuals who represent like their entire life's work 
as much as I feel like individuals from this time period do. So it's like a really, really fun look into the personality types that drove those industries. And th this wasn't in the book at all, right? If I remember correctly. Oh, it's, it is. Yeah, a well, little bit, but Edison is not really mentioned at yeah, all. Yeah, not not a lot. Fun fact about the Edison Tesla rivalry in the movie: when Tesla's machines are being exhibited in the Royal Albert Hall, there's that man in the audience who protests that Tesla's electrical currents are unstable, and he causes everyone to run out of the theater. Later on in the movie, the same man appears in Colorado Springs as one of Edison's associates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So thus proving that the magicians are not the only ones who hide within their rivals' audiences. Like like you're saying, oh, really it's fun. they're mirroring between Edison, Tesla, yeah. and Borden and Angier. Yeah. But in the book, I think it was kind of lame because Tesla is in the book, but it's very brief. And basically Angier is sent on this wild goose chase, just like he is in the movie, but he goes to Tesla and Angier wants Tesla to make this machine. And Tesla more or less is like, all right, like I'll do it, Angier. And then he just like makes it. And that's kind of it. Where in the movie, the process is a little bit longer. And throughout Tesla is foreboding and telling Angier, like you should destroy this machine because it's not working the way it's intended and only evil can come of it. Much more noble and likable, to be honest. He, more of a character in the movie, whereas in the book, he's just, he kind of just shows up and makes the machine and that he's a means to an end, whereas Tesla is also, in the movie, is also a means to an end, but he serves as an audience surrogate in a way of showing you that Angier is now moving into full-on villain mode and his ambition in his hubris is going to get the best of him, mm -hmm. which it eventually does. Yeah. I mean, Tesla in this, the fittingness of, of the, and the comparisons between the Edison Tesla rivalry aside, just everything that every line delivered by David Bowie in this film is just magnetic. Like mm -hmm. not, no pun intended with the Tesla <laughs> being an electromagnetism physicist, but just he's the king of one-liners in this like in a film where you know every line is meant to reference another line oops i hit my mic in a film where everything's mentioned to design to kind of reference each other's lines and it's it's just this screenplay that's so interconnected all of tesla's lines just stand on their own like it's mm. it's they're just, they're just great um the my favorite one of my favorite lines in the film when he says, have you considered the cost, Mr. Angier? And Hugh Jackman says, price is not an object. I'm fucking rich as hell, Lord Caldlow. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't actually say that, but he says, price <laughs> is not an object. And Tesla says this great line, perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? Um, he also has the whole thing about man's reach exceeds his grasp and that whole monologue, um, mm -hmm. which comes back as the kind of the prestige line um, in the the real transported man. Um Pretty, pretty much everything. He's, I think at one point he says exact science is not an exact science. Um, it's just every every line in the screenplay was like written perfectly for David Bowie to embody Nikola Tesla and just be like the the most like poetic scientist um, ever portrayed on screen. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm not sure if either one of you are familiar with this, but I found out after doing research that Christopher Priest wrote a book about the movie and about his opinions. It's called The Magic. 
And I was not able to read it before we recorded this podcast, but he was actually unhappy with the casting choice and also David Bowie's performance in the movie, which I think is a little silly. He, I mean, I read a lot about his opinions of the movie because he wrote an entire book. I don't think most authors, you have access to most authors' deep opinions (laughs) over the books or the movies that are made out of their books. Right. But he talked about how he insisted that Christopher Nolan make this film, um, which I think was a really smart choice because, like you were saying, Christopher Nolan is such a master master of this kind of story. Yeah, this, like just self-referencing, internalized time looping, time looping epic. Um, but then he also went on to say that all the rest of Christopher Nolan's movies aren't that good. <laughs> like, and he had like a lot of criticisms about the movie, and I was just kind of surprised because maybe he's just bitter that the movie I think is better than the book. Yeah, by <laughs> by big margin. But, but yeah, it just felt it was very strange that he was so critical of David Bowie in the movie because I thought he just stood out. And and Zach, you're right. Like all of the lines that he had in the movie were not in the book. Like he had a very small part. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but most of his lines were not. Yeah, in the I book. believe there's only one line that is identical, which is when Borden is looking at all his hats and he's saying. Like, oh, yeah. So Tesla's like, make sure to take your hat, monsieur. And he's like, which one's my hat? He goes, they're all your hat. And that's kind of, I think that was the only similarity where that happens in the book as well. But yeah, I I, I didn't know that Priest wrote a whole book about that. I have some quotes from him, but I didn't realize they were coming from a book that he wrote. Christopher Priest is quoted saying he liked the seriousness of the approach to the movie, the lack of levity quality of direction the indirect multi-level narrative but yeah he wasn't a fan of the ending because he was saying he was so focused on the fact that that his central mystery about borden was not concealed which uh, you had mentioned that you it was concealed to you to the ending yeah Yeah, well and for me too like i didn't pick up well the only reason i picked up on it was because i had seen the movie first Mm -hmm. i mean i i don't know if i would have picked on it as well and Christopher Priest was also frustrated that there was a lack of the modern story that bookended the book, which all three of us have admitted that we're happy that that was cut. So not sure what Priest was talking about in his whole analysis, but we can praise him for, you know, giving us the kernel of the story, just how we praised Mario Puzo for giving us the skeleton of the Godfather. But I think all the changes Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan made were for the better. Yeah. Is the goldfish bowl trick referenced in the book? Um it as is. well that as well as the um as well as the bird um the well, there's two versions of the, the bird in a cage trick. Um but that was that was something that I don't remember if it was in the book, but I think the film did a really good job of the um the symbolism um specifically of those two tricks. Um I think you you already mentioned, yeah, the bird in the cage where um, I think it's the the little boy who first kind of reveals how it's done, who is starts crying when he sees it because he knows that there's a dead bird uh, hidden underneath the trap door, which is pretty much exactly the same as how uh, how Angier's trick works, except without um, uh, physically duplicating the bird via a Tesla machine. The more interesting one and slightly more nuanced is the the goldfish bowl trick, where I think it's um, 
Michael Caine, who actually tells them both to go see this trick. And the language he uses is something like, if you want to see what it takes to like make a real trick, you go see this, this Chinaman named Chung, Chung Ling Su, I think, the, who has a, this goldfish bowl trick. And he says, whoever can tell me, you know, how he does it wins the prize. I forget what the prize was, but um, some, some minutes on stage with some person. With um, his friend. Yeah. That was like a, mm. a big magician. Yeah. So the, when they go and you and see this, uh, you see Hugh Jackman's face is kind of like all puzzled and he's trying to trying to figure it out. And Borden just has this like shit eating grin on his face because he clearly like can see this guy. Like, I don't I don't know if he's grinning because he sees how the trick is done or because he feels seen because the secret is the same. But then after the show, uh, you have a conversation between Borden and Angier where Chung Ling Su, the magician, is uh, essentially disabled and using a cane to walk very very slowly and borden's looking at him like this is the performance this this is what it takes total devotion and self-sacrifice and then it's basically revealed in the shot right after this that uh the performance is him pretending to be a cripple his outside of the show and then during the show he uses that um to perform something that, that is essentially just pure physical strength but people just don't assume that uh that that's how it would be done right. which if effectively symbolizes and foreshadows borden's trick which there there really is no trick it's the trick is convincing everyone outside of his act that he's one person and that's uh i think that comes up later um when even as uh, as scarlett johansson's like living with them and you know, sleeping with one of the twins, um, she comes back and is like, yeah, it's a, it's a double, like there's makeup all over and like, this is all there. And, um, and Hugh Jackman, who kind of knows how Borden thinks about magic and self-sacrifice is like, well, he's just leaving that out there to fool you. And she's like all the time, really? And he's like, yes, all the time. Like that's what it takes. It turns out the reason they have that makeup is because they're doing the, the swap and everything, but it really is like that, that level of dedication, um, is is what it takes and that's what borden's character at least one of them i'm actually not sure that both of the twins agree on this but there is that whole debate which you mentioned earlier where the way anjir approaches magic is as a performance and it's that connection with the audience as his his monologue at the end his his final words before death reveal but the borden obviously at least one of them is more interested in the mechanics of how the trick works. Um, and that that's actually kind of what sets up their disagreement before, even before um, Angier's wife dies, because they, they have a bit of an argument at the start over um, one of them being a bad showman, uh, Borden being a bad showman, but a very good magician, and Angier kind of being the opposite. Um, there, there's even a line where uh, Michael Caine is telling him that one of the newspapers has called him the best performer in London. And he says, not magician, mind you, best performer of any type. And so mm. that's what Angier cares about, whereas Borden cares about the, you know, the secret. But I'm not sure it's both twins. And my reason for this, um, as I was watching this morning, there's a line which Borden actually says, um, he, he says the secret impresses no one. The trick you use it for is everything. And I was really confused because this is kind of inconsistent with the rest of what Borden says throughout the movie about what he cares about. But then I realized this is, it's probably one of the Bordens, probably Alfred, the one, uh, who loved Sarah, who 
believes this way. And then there's other one who's really obsessed with the craft of magic or the, I, I refer to it like he's the engineer, whereas like Angier is more of like the showman. Um, mm. It's like one, one person cares about the code and like the code is really clean. And the other person only cares about what the end user actually sees. Um, I'm, right. I work in the tech industry, so sorry for that analogy. No, no, that totally makes sense. And I think it goes back to that conversation that Angier has with Tesla, like, what are the costs? And I think like, you're totally right. One of the Borden brothers, Freddie, is happy to take that cost on. And he, in fact, I think like what you were saying, he feels seen when he's watching that other person's stage act because he's like, oh, this guy gets it. This, mm -hmm. this guy knows that you have to continuously assert this one truth that everybody thinks is true to be able to be successful. But I think it is a lot more compelling to think that that other brother doesn't have the same perspective. Like I, because the one thing that I had an issue with in the book is like, it's so easy to have that second brother. Like, it's it's almost like you don't want to believe that there's a brother because you're, you're like, oh, it's identical twins. Like, come on, that would be so difficult to pull off. But like, it's an obvious answer and all this stuff. Kind of like, you know, you're like an audience yeah. member. You're like, I don't want to believe that. But I kind of like that one brother is more willing to risk everything and like sacrifice half of his life, basically. Like, I think at the very end, there's that line about, you know, I've been living a half life rather than a whole life, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it is more compelling to see like one brother is totally ready to give all that up, totally ready to completely commit to the bit. But then the other brother's like, no, like, I kind of want a family. Like, I kind of want a life outside of this. This isn't worth it to me. Because, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that both twins would be like 100% ready to sacrifice their own life to yeah. pull off a stage I, trip. I like how um, this reminded me of, of something funny when you said he identifies with Chung Ling Su because Chung Ling Su gets it and he knows what it takes. In the same way, you can see the moment that um, we'll, we'll say Freddie falls in love with Scarlett Johansson's character. You can see the exact moment where he's like, I'm into you. And it's when she is telling him, this is right after they had, one of the brothers lost um, two of their fingers. And obviously the other one, it's later revealed, they chiseled them off to match. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my internal T talk about sound that I made. raising the stakes. That was fucking disgusting yeah. so after after this happens scarlett johansson basically tells like has has said to angier like you know he's hiding it but you can tell like it's the same man because they both have the the fingers missing and scarlett johansson takes his you know maimed hand and says like this is like you should not be hiding this um and like this shows like you know it must be difficult to perform illusions with one hand and he's like hmm you get it. And you're yeah. hot. You're Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. That, you can see the exact moment. Um, and that, that is by the way, what leads me to believe the one who, the one who says the secret impresses no one is, is Alfred. And the one who um, uh, is just really just cares about the magic and is slightly more committed to that is, uh, is the one who is um, quote unquote cheating with, uh, with ScarJo. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, he's the one who eventually, his hubris, just like with Angier, his hubris gets the best of him when he goes to check out Angier's trick to see how it's done. Of, you know, of course, leading to him being framed for a murder. And even the story of the twins knowing what it takes 
it goes back to the characterization we were talking about at the beginning about Angier, whereas Angier is, is a showman but didn't have the engineering chops and just wanted to throw money at the problem. He eventually was successful through Tesla, through these uh, sci-fi story mechanics. But he still, even after getting the answer, he still can't commit to the, the sacrifice of living a double life. So that's why he needs to kill his clones. Yeah. But the irony being that killing your clones is, you know, an equal sacrifice to just living a double life. Like you, you can either live a double life or maybe die tonight, you know? Mm -hmm. So great character work. Which it's, it's actually, I find it ironic because in the, in the um, Tesla Edison rivalry, if you want to take that analogy further, um, Air is technically Edison because in that rivalry, Tesla is the scientist who really knows the science and is dedicated to the craft. And Edison is the showman and the, the politician who doesn't know shit about science, but he's good at, you know, public opinion and PR and uses that to ruin Tesla, um, which I thought was, you know, despite Angier spending all the time with, with Tesla, he is the opposite in, in that, um, in that duo. Yeah. I think it was really interesting because as you're reading the other person's writing, which is confusing, but you really start to favor the person who's talking at the moment. And I really enjoyed how that mechanically worked because of the structure of the novel, which we've talked about this before, but it's in the structure of an epistolary. So it's like a collection of different kinds of documents. And you start to favor Angier, but then you feel very betrayed when he goes to Tesla, because when he finds that or when Olivia gives him that piece of paper that says Tesla and he sort of is sent on this wild goose chase, at first you start feeling really bad for him. You're like, oh shit, that was like a complete red herring. I guess good for Borden for being able to, you know, <laughs> manipulate him into doing that. But then you start to feel like he completely betrayed the mechanics of the illusion. And they talk very, like even Danny mentioned it in the beginning of the podcast where there's this strict rule or code of regulations that magicians follow. And by being able to actually do magic, Angier completely blows all that up. And like, he is it, like, I guess it just goes to show that he is that showman and he doesn't care how the mechanics work. He just cares that people are blown away and that he's going to win this rivalry. So yeah. it's like, I, I just love how that, unreliable narrator is used in this book so completely it's just yeah. it's like the perfect example specifically in the book just because that's sort of it's more difficult to figure out because you're just reading and you're not actually seeing what's going on in front of you visually but yeah I just felt like that was such a betrayal of the magician's code that it, it like it kind of like went to show his deeper character of like this guy doesn't care about the truth he just cares about the show yeah and yet in the film it's almost the opposite where they're com they're telling you everything and they're completely reliable in what they're telling you both on um if you notice when he actually does the the final version of the trick the he first of all he calls it the real transported man you have i mm -hmm. think you have so um borden has the transported man the original then there's like the new transported man which is the one that they do with the uh the double drunk Hugh Jackman, which is another whole hilarious part of the film. Yeah. Um, and then there's, and then Borden reintroduces it as like the original transported man. Then after um, 
Angier develops the final version. He literally calls it the real transported man. And in the entire like opening, when he brings that trick on stage, he's basically saying like, this is not an illusion. This is real. Da, 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 da. Michael Caine, even in the trial says is like telling the, the judge behind closed doors. He's like most disappointing trick of all. It's real. And <clears throat> as an audience member, you're like, just like refusing to believe this. Um, in the same way that they do the same thing with Borden where Michael Caine's like, he uses a double. It's obvious. Right. And then, you know, Scarlett Johansson and Hugh Jackman shoot him down. Like, no, nope, no, nope, same guy. Um, and it's just like, so it would be so disappointing to believe that the answer is it's just real. And in the same way, it would be kind of disappointing to say like, Oh, Borden's just using a double that they tell you it, you refuse to believe it. And then it actually is a surprise at the end. Um, and it's actually somewhat satisfying of a surprise because you, you knew it was there and it wasn't like, it wasn't a cheap twist. I think, I think we've talked about this um, on the, some of the podcasts you were on of mine, Danny, where there's like a good twist needs to be, um, you know, the, the clues needed to be there. Otherwise it's just like, I don't know. It's just feels cheap because there wasn't right. like, if you didn't lay the groundwork for it, the, the payoff there, then it, it doesn't really like, yeah, it just came out of nowhere. So it wasn't actually like well done. Whereas this, like they go right up to the line and perhaps even over the line in my opinion, in the, in the carousel scene, but you still, um, you still don't really catch on. Uh, at least to both of them. I've I've actually, I think I, let's see, I'm trying to remember my original watch and if I suspected anything. If I recall, I had, you know, I was completely uh, in the dark until he reveals it like officially about the twin twist. Uh, the Hugh Jackman twist, I think I, I think it was the the cats when, when they duplicate the cats. When I started to unravel, I'm like, oh, he's still alive and is framing um, him for the murder. But yeah, most most people I know have either been surprised by one or both of the twists. Um, and it's funny because it's not always the same one. I know people who completely were like, I called that twin thing, but they were like, they had no idea um, the Hugh Jackman like twist was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love it. I love the double twist. I love that depending on who you're paying attention to and which character you identify with more, you may be likely to see one twist coming, but not the other. And I love rewatching it and seeing that both of them really were there. Um, yeah. And you, I, I don't necessarily feel dumb for missing it because like the way it was crafted was was so well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was definitely all there. Um, and I like I just tried to write down as many notes as I could. And it's there's so many things that you you notice more and more every time you rewatch it. Well, I'm sure you would notice a lot just by watching the hen- the bodyguard. What's his name again? Fallon. Fallon. Yeah. Because I did not. That's a change from the book because technically the brothers just exchange information by trading the notebook. And I think it was really, really, really smart to have Fallon there always watching because he can pick up those little details like like an inside joke that maybe didn't make it into a notebook by the end of the day. Like I did not see Christian Bale under that makeup. It was only. It was him, right? Yeah. 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 The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, it was only until I was like, Oh, they're not just switching outside of the workroom. He's there the whole time. Like as soon as I started realizing that I started watching him and I was like, Oh my God. Like, he was there the whole time. So if I went back, I feel like the first thing I would do is like watch him 
the entire movie yeah just to see like even like eye contact like where are his what are his eyes watching like what what conversations are he is he privy to what is he not there for all that stuff i think i would want to go back and just like dissect and be like eagle-eyed about his behavior well he is not he is not very often the focus of any shot um it's really interesting the way they do that um he's very often on the side or on the background or often like not he's at like an angle or like hunched over in a weird way um Mm. so you can't like you don't really get any close-up shots on him this is where the cinematography and the edit do a really good job of hiding that but uh, and he obviously has no lines. Um, there, there's even references to this when Angier buries him, and he's like, "We tried to get it out of your uh, your engineer, um, but he didn't say anything. In fact, he doesn't seem to talk at all." Um, yeah. So Fallon actually has no lines until the very end when he's meeting um, he's meeting him in the prison, and at that point, you actually get uh, I, what might be the first close up shot of that character. And he actually says goodbye. He says the word goodbye. And it's clearly Christian Bale's voice. Like now that I go back and watch it, but the rest of it, he's, um, he doesn't say, yeah, he definitely doesn't talk. And it's like, it's hard to even notice that he's there. He's just like a fly on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, It's extremely tricky to pull something like that off. And I, so as a 12 year old watching this, I didn't see both twists coming, both the Borden one and Angier didn't see it at all. And when Fallon says goodbye in the prison, as a 12-year-old, I remember thinking, oh, that's Christian Bale. That's weird that he they hired him to play <laughs> Fallon as well. <laughs> like, I'm like, maybe Fallon is his brother, but I, I didn't connect Fallon being his brother to him to the trick. I think the storytelling is so well done that I just kind of just completely went over my head like, oh, like, okay, that's kind of a minor twist. Fallon is related to Christian Bale in some way. (laughs) Christian Bale, you know, it wouldn't have been the first time that an actor plays multiple roles. I mean, Tilda Swinton does that all the time. So yeah, (laughs) I I didn't see that coming at all. And then even when it was spelled out to me that the machine is duplicating things, whether it be the hat or the cat, (laughs) cat, cat in the hat Um, i have that in my notes right (laughs) yeah but i didn't see angier still being alive and framing borden until he shows up at the jail cell and my my mind again was just blown i mean uh, my mind continues to be blown every time i watch this because it just holds up but i think nothing will come close to that first viewing as a 12 year old in my home in westfield mass just, just completely just being immersed well it's almost like you see nolan is so well versed in how the mechanics of movies work that he was able to leverage the fact that a lot of people would say hey like i was gonna say for example paul dano in there will be blood he shows up as two characters and at first i was like oh that there must be a storyline behind that when in reality it was just that the person cast in that second role wasn't able to show up for the movie and so he was just cast twice I feel like that's Nolan's way of playing off the audience's expectations of like, oh, maybe that person like got sick and couldn't make it to shoot that day. And so they made Christian Bale up to look different. That's that's almost like a level of movie making where you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Levels upon levels. But that's Christopher Nolan, right? Like, that's what he does best. He's all about levels. You're almost again, like as an audience member, you're like primed to like look for those things that Christopher Nolan's going to do. But in that way, he's like, gotcha. (laughs) 
I, I might just be face blind. Cause even in that last shot, I can't like, I'm looking at it. I'm looking, I pause it and look straight at him and I can't see Christian Bale. Um, this actually just happened to me yesterday too. When someone showed me a still of Michael Sheen um, in Tron and I'm like, that's not Michael Sheen. Like Michael Sheen has funny hair now. And then I went to IMDb and looked up like every role Michael Sheen has been in since before good omens. Um, and I, I'm looking straight at him. I'm like, that's not Michael Sheen. Yeah. I just, so I'm, I may actually just be face blind. It's tough though. Like I, I know exactly what shot you're talking about. And like they use a nose prosthetic. I think they might even use like cheek prosthetics. I think they might use a brow prosthetic. Like his face is hidden. Like they do yeah. an incredible job of hiding that. And, and prosthetics. I mean, it, it's very hard to do something like that. Well, and this movie was not nominated for, best makeup and hairstyling i think it obviously it should have been it was only nominated for best cinematography for wally fisser who was nolan's uh, main dp until interstellar i believe and then it was also nominated for best art direction which is now best production design it didn't win anything uh insane and it was only nominated for two oscars you know having its legacy now i think it's at the top near the top of most you know nolan ranked lists this is pretty beloved and something i also wanted to mention at the time this was released it got genuinely positive reviews but it wasn't widely praised it has a 74 on rotten tomatoes which is seems low especially when something like tenet has the same uh review and we've talked about tenet in past episodes but that's kind of that's nolan at his worst in in terms of storytelling it, it, it still is a big spectacle but here is nolan at the top of his game where he's able to balance spectacle and storytelling mm-hmm. so i'm happy it has its legacy now it's kind i guess you could kind of consider it a cult hit even though you know it was successful financially um yeah yeah, I think I'm out of things to say. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we I mentioned Wally Fisser real quick. His cinematography here is pretty breathtaking, especially that shot of the light bulbs. Yeah, uh, in, that's in the co- first shot I think oh, of when you say cinematography. Yeah. But the, yeah. the whole thing's really good. Pretty much anything with all of the Tesla um, stuff is is really good. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the, the score of this film. Um, it is uh, Jewel, uh, Jules or Julian... Um, something is the name of the composer. And this is prior to Christopher Nolan kind of uh, acquiring Hans Zimmer as his default composer. Um, but the the muted score of this, I think, is much better than the very over-the-top scores in most of Nolan's later work um, because it's such a... The, the story is front and center in this one. It's not a huge spectacle as far as visual effects go. I think this is probably the best screenplay um, other than maybe Memento that um, Nolan has ever worked on. Part of that, again, is due to his brother. I think the the films where they collaborate tend to be the better screenplays. Um, but this is like, you know, this is prior to The Dark Knight, which kind of bridges early Nolan and late Nolan, where early Nolan is a little more focused on story and screenplay and later Nolan is more cinematography and, uh, you know, just win that visual effects Oscar because that's all you're ever going to get. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this, and this one, so I'll, I'll just end with, uh, the, I, I love that, um, you know, the twists are there. I love that they basically tell you the answer, but you're not looking for it. But what I love the most is at the end, they tell you that they told you 
and that you were not looking for it because you want to be fooled. Um, There's, there's two things that sum this up really well. Hugh Jackman's dying words in the film. He says to Alfred Borden, not Freddie Borden, but Alfred, uh, you never understood why we did this. Uh, The audience knows the truth. The world is simple, miserable, solid all the way through. But if you can fool them even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And then in that moment, you get to see something truly special. It was the look on their faces. And then the last words of the film are given to the great Michael Caine, Sir Michael Caine, where he reiterates the first lines of the film, which at the end says, you're looking for the secret, but you don't really want to work it out. You want to be fooled. And then for some reason, we cut to Tom York's uh, radio, yeah. <laughs> uh, Radiohead-like um, single for the credits, which might be the only thing out of place in the film. But that that last line of fooled um, is, I'm not going to attempt the Michael Caine voice as as you bravely have, Danny, but I think that sums it up really well, is that um, I don't think I consider anyone who didn't see the twists coming in this film to be less intelligent because the way it was crafted was if you're watching it, trying to like figure out the Nolan twist, I think you're not watching it correctly. This is, this is filmmaking at its best where, you know, you're along for the story and you're kind of, you're kind of actively preventing yourself from trying to figure it out, which just makes it all the much more enjoyable. Um, And that last, um, that last line, I think the the whole thing works as an allegory for filmmaking um, and the way that magic is talked about in the film and that connection to the audience um, through kind of letting them live in a different world for a while is what makes movies great. uh, And Christopher Nolan knows it better than most. Wow. Well said. Yeah. You can't really say anything more than that other than what we've said of, yeah, it's the ideal blockbuster film in that it's also intellectually stimulating, but you can just watch it as a regular narrative or you can engage with it as much as you want. Like most of Nolan's films, it's endlessly rewatchable. So yeah, I I completely agree. Laura, anything else before we, we rate the book and the movie? No, honestly, Framing it as an allegory for filmmaking just makes the movie stand out more than the book for me. There's just so much to say with that. And that literally put it in a different perspective for me because like, I feel like I ruined movie magic for myself. I literally said it at the beginning of the podcast that I we were just watching Wet Hot American Summer, first day of summer, the first reboot. And I know because Danny and I toured the location where they filmed as a wedding venue, I know the angles that they're shooting (laughs) (laughs) because I know like specifically sort of where the cabins were and where this lodge is. And like, I love it. I love the writing. It's so funny, but I sort of like broke it down too much to the point where I wasn't enjoying it. And like, that's where you want to catch an audience during a, a magic show is where they're not breaking it down. And there's even a couple scenes in the book and the movie where breaking down magic is discussed And they're sort of talking about the mechanics of like how simple magic is. Like there are a few simple rules. One of them is misdirection. Literally like that's like one for one comparison for me about how I kind of ruin movies for myself sometimes. So I'm going to try to be like a better audience member and just like let myself get taken away by that magic a little bit more. Amen. So Zach, (laughs) out of four stars, what would you rate the book and the movie? Um, the book, let's see, I can't, I don't really remember it that well. It's been at least 12 years since I read it, but, um, uh, and I also don't read a lot of books, so probably, um, <laughs> uh, you know, probably one of the top 10 books I've read, but I just haven't read, uh, more than 10 books. So 
leave it at that. Um, the movie, uh, I've definitely seen a lot of movies. How, was it out of four stars? Yeah. I'll give it, I'll give it four stars and a David Bowie, which makes it five stars. <laughs> yep. Nice. That's <laughs> like that. <laughs> we've never, we've never had an additional star, but you've justified it. So I yeah. hope you don't have to put that on a website somewhere. I hope there's a David Bowie emoji you can put next to the four yeah. stars. There, there is a rock star emoji that has a little. There actually is. Zigzag. There is a David yeah. Bowie emoji. Yeah. There is a David so Bowie we're emoji. We're doing it That's in the description. Stardust. Yeah. yeah. Oh my Lord. God, I forgot. There actually is a David Bowie emoji. There is. Um, okay, for me, I would say I'm going to ding the book a little bit just because I think the framing didn't quite work. I think the end was creepy, but didn't quite carry the theme for me. So I'm going to say three out of four stars because I did really enjoy it and I got creeped out a little bit. So that was exciting for me. Movie, I would say four out of four. I was totally along for the ride. I loved it. I'm going to watch it again. And in fact, I'll probably watch the movie before I read the book again. I'm not sure because there's, you know, there's a little bit of the magic that gets taken away when you know the twists. And so I'm not sure I'm willing to invest the week or so that I used to read the book. You know, like I think the movie maybe holds a little bit more magic for me and I'll yeah. dive into that. Wait, so have you, have you only twist. seen the film once? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I say my, my favorite film, I, I say it's The Prestige, but what I mean by that is my favorite movie is The Prestige the second time. Because it's a different That's, movie. I love that. That's yeah, a great I'm answer, gonna. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna watch it again. Because even with the twists, it's just like it's. It's kind of like so our smart. Shutter Island episode, how we talk about mm. it's a different movie the second time, and it's one of our favorites. So yeah, yeah. very similar. Love that movie. It's yeah. more mind blowing knowing the twists because then, yeah. like, you're now retwisting every line you heard at the beginning. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And like what you were saying about there has to be crumbs to pick up the next time you watch it. Yeah. All right. What do you think? Um, I'm less hot on the book. I don't read a lot either, Zach. Uh, in fact, I read the most books that I've read in years, just the past year for this podcast. Uh, Laura really pushed me to do that. So yeah, I didn't like how you the book kind of makes you hate Borden and their fight is very petty. Mm -hmm. And the Angier section goes on forever. It's like, it's like 220 pages, I believe, and it easily could have been cut down by, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> and the ending is where it's super creepy, and I wish the whole book was like that. Uh, the magic, uh, pun intended, really wasn't there in the book for me, but I, I do like the skeleton structure. So I'm going two out of four for the book. I don't think I don't think I'll revisit it um, ever. But yep, the movie, we're all in agreement, four to four, masterpiece. I don't think it's Nolan's best, but it's still an amazing film. One that I will revisit time and time again throughout my life. Great suggestion. I'm so happy that yeah, you did Yeah, thank you, Zach. Yeah, and um, I'll end this by saying that I'm coming in hot next year for the Oscars uh, prediction. So, <laughs> listeners, I have an Oscars pool every year. And last year, I won it, or I tied you tied place. with two of my other ballots that I yes. filled out. <laughs> yeah, right. But this year, I don't know. It was an off year for me, but Zach uh, wiped the floor uh, with the competition. Absolutely. Except slipped. Eric. Eric tied with me. We don't have to talk about Eric. Uh, <laughs> but you definitely deserve the Oscar pool, considering the form that you put together for all of us to fill out online. Yeah. Because we couldn't meet and gather as a party this year. 
but we were able to do it via your form. So yeah. thanks for that too. Zach is an Excel wizard and he was <laughs> he put a, a sheet together that tracked everyone's scores throughout the show and gave us updates. It went through graphs and numbers. Google. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, Gmail. I'm, I'm so impressed. So Zach, I'm coming back for vengeance uh, next right. year. And I don't want to tie anyone for first. I just want to win. <laughs> Win everyone's money. I'm embarrassed about my performance, but yeah. So Zach, thank you again for joining us. Uh, everyone, please check out his podcast. Yeah, do you want to plug? Do you have an upcoming episode at all? Uh, we do not. We are waiting on television to start again because uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm, I was going to say I hope uh, next year's Oscars features better movies. Um, but uh, same with television. Um, I Yeah, we've been a bit... Uh, this is the longest we've gone since we started without an episode. I think our last episode was the end of 2020 recap, which 2020 did have television still coming out. But uh, mm-hmm. 2021 has not had as much content. But we will be back as soon as there is required viewing because that is the title <laughs> of our podcast. So yeah. it should be available on all the major podcast platforms. Search for required viewing uh, with Zach and Shams. Um, and Shams has also been busy, um, but he just got married. So he's he's living the busy quarantine married life. But we will be back talking about television whenever television is back and worth talking about. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Congrats to Shams. But yeah, and if you want to listen to a specific episode, the Damon Lindelof episode, which I guested on, uh, was was particularly good in my opinion. I know I'm biased, <laughs> but yeah. All right, Zach. Well, we'll be back next week with our coverage on Watchmen, the movie. And then after that, we're going to do a two-part episode on the TV series, which Zach already knows my thoughts on that. But yeah, <laughs> thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next one.